We don't want to keep soldiers between Syria and Turkey for the next 200 years. They've been fighting for hundreds of years. We're out. But we are leaving soldiers to secure the oil. Now, we may have to fight for the oil. That's okay. Maybe somebody else wants the oil, in which case they have a hell of a fight. But there's massive amounts of oil. That was President Trump taking time out while announcing the death of ISIS leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi to arguably offer new proof for what terrorists and anti-American propagandists have argued for years, that when it comes to United States involvement in the Mideast, it really is all about the oil. Remarkably, the president even talked last Sunday about doing a deal with ExxonMobil or some other oil industry giant to manage Syrian oil fields, which under pretty settled international law, don't belong to us at all. It's a message that meshes perfectly into the themes of Rachel Maddow's new book, Blowout, about the corrupting power of the global oil and gas industry. In a week, the evidence against the president about his Ukraine shenanigans grew ever more damning, and the House voted to formally authorize an impeachment inquiry aimed at removing him from office. We'll talk to Maddow about her thesis as well as the next acts in the impeachment saga. And we'll talk to former New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landro, a leading centrist voice in Democratic Party politics, about his take on the impeachment battle and the contest for next year's Democratic nomination on this special Halloween episode of Skullduggery. Because people have got to know whether or not their presidents are crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So before we get into our uh, regular uh, impeachment watch talk, which I think is going to be a, a pretty steady feature of skullduggery for the next few months, I just wanted to take time out to take note of those uh, remarkable comments from Trump on Sunday when he was announcing the uh, al-Baghdadi raid to be talking about securing the oil fields, of having American soldiers on the ground protecting the oil fields, and bringing in ExxonMobil, an American oil company, to manage <laughs> Syrian oil fields. I mean, I was talking after Trump's uh, press conference there to Ali Safan, the famed counter former counterterrorism agent for the FBI uh, who reminded me that American seizing of Mideast oil fields was a principal theme when bin Laden declared war on the United States back in 1996. It has been a persistent theme time and again of our adversaries that were really just there for the oil. And there was Trump validating that very thesis. Well, look, I mean, protecting the flow of oil from the Middle East, particularly the Straits of Ormuz, has always been a central feature of modern American national security policy uh, in that part of the world. But what Trump is talking about is something very different. He's talking about essentially seizing the oil fields and bringing in American oil companies to manage them and to 
he talked about spreading the wealth, but I'm not sure who he means to yeah. spread the wealth to, except for American oil companies. Mm-hmm. So, look, a couple of things here. One, no question, this is a, a violation of international law. It is the definition of pillaging, which is actually a war, a war crime. This is something that Trump has talked about a lot in the past. I think back in 2011, he actually uh, used the phrase in this context, to the victor go the spoils. But the other piece of it here is that the people around Trump, notably Lindsey Graham, who has, had been very critical of our pulling out of Syria, they see an opportunity here to get Trump actually involved and, and invested and willing to stay in some capacity because they understand that for him, everything is a deal, everything is transactional. And so he also made the oil argument that was tactical on his part. But in the long term, as you point out, this is really not helpful in terms of the way we are viewed by people in, the, in that part of the world. I think in any other context, it would be uh, considered outrageous and there'd be people talking about it nonstop about uh, the president's uh, improper comments there, but for the fact that he's being impeached, which seems to overshadow everything else. Uh, We've just had the momentous vote by uh, the full house to authorize the impeachment inquiry. It came down along pretty much partisan lines. Two Democrats voted no. No Republicans voted yes. Justin Amash, the former Republican from Michigan, did vote yes. He's now an independent. But that's not good for the Democrats. It's not what Nancy Pelosi wanted and Adam Schiff wanted. They wanted a bipartisan vote. But The evidence keeps getting more and more damning for the president, and it looks like it could get even worse with these National Security Council official Tim Morrison testifying. Uh, He was right in the middle of this. And, you know, the piece de resistance, of course, will be John Bolton if he testifies. Yeah, well, so the battle lines have been drawn, and so far it is highly partisan. Both sides are very entrenched in this fight. But as you point out, this is not a, in terms of the evidence, this is not a static situation. There is a steadily mounting you know, level of evidence against the president, and we have yet to have public hearings. There will be public hearings fairly soon. And I think the most significant thing here, and we can get into the particulars of some of this evidence and some of these witnesses, but all of the witnesses, almost all of the witnesses so far have been people inside the White House or inside the State Department, not for the most part denizens of of the deep state, but increasingly people who have been handpicked by the Trump administration to serve in these positions. And we started this week with the very powerful, dramatic testimony of Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vinneman, uh, a Ukrainian-American, who in real time, as these things were developing and as he was learning about what the president had done, was so disturbed, so shocked that as soon as he would learn these things, he would go to the White House lawyers and say, things have happened that are wrong and we've got to do something about it. It happened on at least two occasions. One, when he was in Well, let's go through that testimony because it is 
pretty dramatic when you look at the details. And I don't think this has been fully absorbed by most folks yet. Presumably, if Vinman testifies, this could be quite gripping. But let's start with two meetings, which is worth focusing on. July 10th, when two Ukrainian officials, advisors to President Zelensky, the recently elected uh, President Zelensky, come in. One is uh, this guy, Andrei Yermak, who's a Zelensky advisor. Another is uh, named Daniliuk, the head of Ukraine's National Security and Defense Council. They go for a meeting with Ambassador Gordon Sondland, uh, a key player in this, if you've been following the, uh, the proceedings. And Vinman is there, and Sondland is pushing them to investigate the Bidens, saying there in Vinman's presence, this is what we want you to do. This is what the president wants you to do. So at that point, Vinman, one of those attending the meeting, in addition to Vinman and Sondland, is Bolton. He's so alarmed by the comments, he cuts off the meeting, cuts it short. Sondland then takes the Ukrainians down to the basement and delivers the, the message again, emphasizing, quote, and this is from Vindman's testimony, the importance that Ukraine deliver the investigations into the 2016 election, the Bidens and Burisma, and it quite this, explicit. And at this point, I believe yeah. uh, uh, Fiona Hill walks into the meeting. She is overseeing Ukraine and Russia policy in the National Security Council, and she hears this and is shocked right. and gets very emotional. And Vinman and Hill then go to this NSC lawyer, John Eisenberg, and raise their objections to what Sondland is telling the Ukrainians that the president wants. So Eisenberg is on notice. There are concerns from his top National Security Council officials dealing with Ukraine that something they view as inappropriate is being demanded of the Ukrainians. That's on July 10th. Then July 25th comes. That's the date of the phone call. And Vinman is among those listening in. He hears what the president says to Zelensky. Here's the request to investigate the Bidens. Here's the request to investigate the supposedly missing DNC server and Ukrainian interference in the 2016 election. Vinman is so upset about this, knowing that this is completely inappropriate in his view. He goes to Eisenberg again, at which point Eisenberg orders that the notes of that phone call and the records of that phone call be put into this super secret, class of highly classified server, presumably, so nobody finds out what the president has done. I'm kind of curious what Vinman thought of Eisenberg doing that, because he comes and reports conduct that he thinks is really troubling, really inappropriate. Eisenberg is taking notes on a yellow pad. And then he says, well, we're going to put this in this, you know, secure safe, essentially, for code word only intelligence. It looks like he's saying, "Okay, well, we can't let this get out. We're going to cover it up. 
Yes, it does. Now, I think the uh, Trump people would argue when the Justice Department came calling because uh, of the uh, whistleblower's complaint. Actually, the whistleblower had first gone to the CIA general counsel who notifies the Justice Department as well as the NSC. Eisenberg did let the Justice Department head of the National Security Division look at the transcript of the phone call. And what did uh, what did he conclude? This is John Demers, the uh, National Security Assistant Attorney General, uh, well, nothing to see here, no problem. There's no Justice Department investigation. But hearing those, cons- we haven't heard it. The members in the closed door sessions have heard these concerns from people like Hill and Vinman. And I think when we get to the public hearings, which now look like they're a few weeks away, that's going to be extremely powerful testimony. Okay, so Isikoff, there was a second very important witness late in the week, Tim Morrison, a handpicked protege of John Bolton. Why is Morrison's testimony important? Well, Morrison was in on these meetings. Morrison was well aware of the demands that were being put on the uh, Ukrainians uh, from Sondland and to a lesser extent, Kurt Volker, the uh, special envoy for Ukraine. And he, on the day that he is testifying behind closed doors, he resigns from the NSC, a pretty uh, good signal that um, he wants to tell his story. And and his story, by the way, his story, by the way, is confirming much of what Ambassador William Taylor told the committee uh, last week, that there was a quid pro quo that in exchange for releasing the military assistance in exchange for a meeting with President Trump that Zelensky would have. The uh, Ukrainians would have to investigate uh, the 2016 election and Burisma and Biden. And what's more, you know, the Republicans have over and over again said that there have not been any firsthand witnesses to the idea that there was a, a quid pro quo. But Morrison was a firsthand witness to some of those conversations. And one of the things— As was Vindman. As was Vindman. As was Vindman. And one of the things that the testimony this week brings up is that I don't think we've seen the last of Gordon Sondland in terms of his testimony because (laughs) he is at the center of all of this. And increasingly it looks like there are aspects of his story that may not be completely holding up and— His very gifted, clever lawyer, Bob Luskin, I think is going to be doing some tap dancing. One of the things that he keeps saying, which I think is just not all that credible, uh, is that Sondland, while yes, he knew that the president was asking for investigations into Burisma, he didn't really know what Burisma was. He didn't really know that Burisma had anything to do with the Bidens. That just doesn't seem terribly credible to me. Yeah, it's uh, almost impossible to believe that uh, there'd be references to Burisma and Sodlin wouldn't say, what, why do we care about this particular company and yeah. all the corruption <laughs> in Ukraine? What is it about this one that's so uh, significant? But wait, 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 wait. Uh, but Gordon Sodlin is clearly not a, uh, you know, he's a foreign policy guy. He's not a politically uh, savvy guy. Oh, except for the fact that yeah, he, he gave a million dollars to Donald Trump's inauguration. 
actually, he's a hotel magnate who uh, essentially bought his way into this uh, lofty ambassadorship to the uh, European Union. Anyway, look, all of which just raises the uh, stakes and the anticipation for the public hearings, which it's now clear we're going to get in a few weeks, and just one more point about uh, the prospective testimony of John Bolton. If he does testify and if he does confirm what Fiona Hill and Vinman and presumably Morrison are all going to say, it's hard to imagine something that won't be more dramatic, won't be more powerful, and could even persuade some of these lingering Republicans who have been on the fence and yet so far have not signed on to impeachment. To hear John Bolton himself say, this is what the president was doing. This was, how was he supposed to have referred to it, according to Fiona Hill's testimony, as a drug deal uh, that the president and Sondland had cooked up? I think I mentioned this to earlier, the idea of Bolton turning on Trump is something right out of House of Cards or Homeland or pick your favorite uh, TV movie drama about presidents unraveling, but we are seeing it and, uh, before and, our living eyes. And, and I increasingly believe that Bolton is going to testify. There have been a lot of questions about whether he would or not, but a couple of things. One is that Tim Morrison, again, his kind of handpicked protege who shares the very hardline, hawkish worldview that, that Bolton does, he's testified. And I think that is a, a signal that Bolton may testify himself. Also, let's remember how Bolton was unceremoniously pushed out of his job uh, at the White House. And I, so I think there may be some um, lingering resentment there that may not make him feel, you know, all that generous toward Trump right now. Just to remind people about the the Trump tweet uh, when he was fired, I informed John Bolton last night that his services are no longer needed at the White House. I disagreed strongly with many of his suggestions, as did others in the administration. (laughs) So kind of a kick on the way out the door. And one other final point on Bolton, whatever you think of his worldview, he is consistent. <laughs> Which and I don't is, think either of us are particularly big fans of. No, but but, but he, yeah. he, he is a true ideologue. He cares more about the policies. He's sort of a paleoconservative national security uh, hawk whose views have been consistent on these issues, I think, since I knew him when he was head of the civil division in the Reagan Justice Department. And, you know, one of those views is he has been a hardline opponent of Russia. Before there was the Soviet Union, now it's Russia. Those views have not changed at all. And on this issue of Ukraine, he cared a lot more about the policy and being tough and projecting American power to advance American interests than he cared about uh, President Trump's, you know, re-election chances. And so, you know, someone who has that kind of consistent um, ideological uh, you know, viewpoints, uh, I think is more likely to testify than not. Well, we will see. It uh, strikes me as the perfect Washington drama we have on our hands. We're looking forward to it. But let's get right now to our guests. We've got two good ones here, Rachel Maddow of MSNBC fame and Mitch Landro. So let's get on with the show.
Rachel Maddow, welcome to Skullduggery. Thank you very much. I'm really nervous. This is um, awesome. Well, you, you know, look, I, I've been uh, on your show back to the Air America days oh, answering yeah. questions from you. So the opportunity to finally turn the tables and <laughs> okay, it's grill a you. Uh, but she's... Is- always nice to you <laughs> all so right you gotta be nice the, to her yeah you don't have like some burning like debt that you think you need to like repay like this is like finally you're gonna get yours yeah. <laughs> is it no it's just my natural instinct that's all but um all right listen congrats on blowout Thank corrupted you. democracy rogue state russia and the richest most destructive industry on earth rachel's remarkable new book so here's my first question i'm mm-hmm. watching sunday while trump is announcing the the death of al-Baghdadi, great triumph for American counterterrorism, and suddenly he starts talking about the Syrian oil fields Mm -hmm. and how we're going to go in there and we're going to secure the oil, we're going to fight for the oil, and what I intend to do perhaps is make a deal with ExxonMobil or one (laughs) of the great companies to go in there. And all I'm thinking is... What a great gift for you to help you promote this book. It is like the fact that Dimitri Furtash has emerged as a character in the impeachment drama. I'm like, that's chapter 19. (laughs) And now we've got the betrayal of the Kurds and we're going to see. So here's a couple things about that. Right. So there's this NBC reporting about that where they describe how Trump got it put in his head that he should go into Syria and protect the oil. And NBC's reporting on that is that national security people who are troubled by the president's decision about abandoning the Kurds and what's going on in Syria realize that they can always get him with an economic argument, that he likes the idea of pillaging. He's into this. This is one of the things he ran on. But the truth of the matter in terms of what they're actually worried about in terms of those oil fields is that likely it will be Russian forces that get control of them because of the way this is being all brokered by Putin now. He basically controls that part of Syria. But they realize they can't tell Trump that if the goal of talking to him about oil is to get him to go in. Because if they tell him, you know, Putin actually has designs on those oil fields, well, then Trump will be like, well, that's okay with me. That'll be no way to get him in there. So they have to tell him that it's Iran because he's supposed to be anti-Iran. That's how they get him. Or ISIS. He said, like, it's ISIS. Apparently the way they pitched it to him was Iran. Okay. But it's... Yeah. But Syria doesn't even have much oil, right? I mean, we're not talking about it. I read somewhere that it's like Illinois produces as much oil as uh, Syria does. Now, maybe that's because those oil fields have been badly damaged. You could do more than 10 times what you're doing every day if they were just up to their pre-Civil War levels. But if they were actually invested in by Western majors, who knows? Maybe you could get something. The problem is it's not our oil. (laughs) I was just going to say, isn't that the point? I mean, this came up during the run-up to the Iraq War, in which Wolfowitz and others at DOD wanted to seize the oil fields, use it to pay for the invasion. John, you wrote an OLC opinion saying, sure, go right ahead. And Condi Rice shut it down at the NSC, saying, no, we can't do that. It's called uh, pillaging, right, yes. which is an actual right. war crime. It's right. a, yes. And yes. he, because because I think Trump said in 2011 that, you know, it, to the victor go the, goes the spoils. I mean, those are his words. That's right? what I learned yeah. when I yeah. played board games as a child. <laughs> You're telling me this isn't how it works under international law? Okay, so tell us the thesis of Blowout, which is, you know, about the power and the destructiveness of the oil industry, but how it all fits together. I mean, without 
doing it in full right. chapter and verse. The right. basic idea is that I think we underestimate the geopolitical influence of this industry. And one way we can see it is at home in places like Oklahoma. One way we can see it is in the third world and in the worst governed countries on earth, like Equatorial Guinea, which is one of my case studies. And one of the places we can see it is in Russia, where Putin decided that rather than developing a diversified economy and building on Russia's strengths, instead they would become a petrostate. He liked that because he likes using oil and gas as a weapon. And it just so happens that the industry has enabled him in doing that. It's been really bad for Russia in terms of their development. They're a country of 150 million people with an economy smaller than Italy's. But it also means that the, you know, a lot of people can get rich while the country fails. And so oil and gas has been a terrible enabler of terribly well, despotic a, governments the world over. You mentioned Equatorial Guinea, and I think you've got <laughs> one of the more colorful and depressing examples of what you just talked about and kind of a poster child for uh, the corruption at the core of the oil industry. I'm not going to even – well, let me try his name. Uh, Teodoro Naguma mm -hmm. Obang Mange. Uh, Obiang, but Obiang yeah, close, yeah, okay. So this is the son of the longtime dictator of Equatorial Guinea. Tell us a little bit about him. So when Equatorial Guinea has oil discovered, offshore oil, the general feeling is that this is going to be a great boon to this country, an incredibly poor country, already a pretty poorly governed country, um, that's been through some violent repression and also a series of military coups. What actually happens is that Exxon and other Western oil companies come in and they are dealing with this despotic regime, and they decide that that despotic regime is all right with them, because that regime actually gives them incredibly remunerative terms on the oil leases in Equatorial Guinea. In exchange, they get no trouble from anybody, and the regime essentially lubricates their way to go do what they want in that country in a way that works out for the regime and works out for the oil country, oil companies, and the whole country gets screwed. And so Obiang becomes one of the richest people on earth. His son becomes almost literally a poster child for what oil-fueled corruption looks like. He becomes one of the world's foremost collectors of Michael Jackson memorabilia and supercars <laughs> and boats that go 100 miles an hour. $30 million dollar mansion in Malibu has his drivers taking his girlfriends shopping in Beverly Hills with shoeboxes stuffed with cash, $80,000 yes. per and box. And meanwhile, yeah. with there's, I mean, there's this huge, huge influx of oil revenue into this tiny country, this tiny poor country. But because the corruption is so robust. The co corruption of that family is so epic. Actually, not only do education levels and general health, health outcomes and poverty get worse in that country as it gets all this extra money, but things like infant mortality go up, violence goes up, rule of law gets even worse. It's the resource curse writ large, right? This is an academic concept that countries that are right. blessed with natural resources often find themselves cursed by the implications of what happens when you let multinationals come in and exploit them. So you make the argument that, and you use Putin as an even larger poster child mm -hmm. or man for all of this, that his autocratic instincts, uh, his suppression of dissent, everything we've learned about uh, the way Putin runs Russia is very much tied to his fixation on the Russian 
oil industry, Mm -hmm. his control over it, and that's how he and all his cronies got incredibly wealthy. And I just wonder, you know, given Russia's history of autocracy, tyranny, and suppression, is it going back to czarist days, Mm -hmm. not to mention the Soviet Union, can it all really be tied to the recourse curse and oil. Well, I yeah, Putin would definitely still be Putin without oil, but Putin right. and oil combined gives you Russia today. I mean, I think the real story about the way that Putinism and oil and gas have combined for the worse, both for Russia and for the world, is that Russia actually did have a chance to become an integrated economy. They did have a chance at the end of the Yeltsin years and at the sort of breakout that they had at the start of the Putin presidency. Part of the reason the book starts in 2003 is I think we have to remember that it wasn't that long ago that Putin was seen as a very, very different figure on the world stage. Had he been able to sacrifice enough of his greed and ego and power hunger to allow for the rule of law and property rights and the basic stuff that you need in order to have a diversified economy grow, Russia could be a really worthy competitor in lots of ways. And they're just not. They float on a sea of oil and gas. They've decided to develop that instead of allowing anything else to develop. And they've taken the industry that they've got on that one easy resource that they've got, and they've put it all under Putin's control so he can wield it as a weapon. But you, you even make the argument that Putin's kind of rapacious appetite for oil and the power and money that comes from that fueled him, a bad pun, but uh, <laughs> to intervene in the American election, right? Yeah. I mean, h- how so? Well, that's how you sort of get there, right? So if you've got oil and gas as your one economic asset, and you've got a terrible oil and gas sector, because every time anybody shows any promise, Putin's like, I'll take that, you know, and he locks up whoever's challenging him and developing their own company and developing their own power. He takes it for himself. And so you've got Gazprom and Rosneft, which are these state-owned mega entities running both oil and gas in Russia, and they're terrible. They're terrible. They're run by like his broken nosed judo buddies from, you know, from 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 eighth grade. And they're set up essentially as gangster corporations. Gazprom's been called by Forbes the worst managed corporation on the planet. I mean, they're they're absolutely terrible. And so while Russia has been able to skate on being able to kind of pump easy to get oil and gas for decades with decades old technology, they're now actually at the point where they're running out of easy oil and gas. They need to be able to do stuff that takes more technological know-how, and they don't have any of it. Even in a story that I recount in some detail, even when Exxon comes in and starts the wells for them in their Arctic play in the Kara Sea, literally Exxon goes out there, finds the oil, drills toward it, points to it and then says, we got to go. There's sanctions. Even with that, Rosneft has no idea how to get the rest of that oil out of the ground, even after the oil, the well's been started for them. They need the Western majors and they can't get the Western majors because of sanctions, because of Putin's behavior. All right, let's move things into our current political drama. Oh, um, we're in it. Yeah. <laughs> right, right, right. Okay. Well, I was going to bring up Secretary Perry's role in the Ukraine yeah. saga. They're trying, he's meeting with Zelensky about getting folks he wants on the Ukrainian energy company. The natural gas company, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah you, Rick Perry, the one scandal-free member of the Trump administration. <laughs> yeah. I mean, here he, here he is. It'll be very interesting to me to see how, with the impeachment proceeding, what we ultimately learn about Perry's involvement. Because he has changed his story already a little bit on whatever it was he was trying to do with NAFTA gas. He does seem to have described his role in White House discussions 
in a way that has been directly contradicted by multiple <laughs> yes, witnesses now right. who have been testifying under oath. So something's right. going on with Perry that we don't understand. But I think the thing that is helpful, like that's it's weird in terms of the timing for when the book came out and what was breaking in the news. I do think it's helpful to recognize how Russia has deliberately used oil and gas as a weapon to keep Ukraine corrupt and dependent. And the Ukrainian natural gas industry, that whole sector, has been essentially set up and kind of cantilevered by Putin in a way to give him control over Ukraine and to keep that country a mess. And so to the extent that there are U.S. persons who are finding themselves anywhere near that spider web, it's a great way to stick people either with the appearance of corruption or with something that entices them to think that they can get in on the action too. Let me, let me just ask, before we move on to other things, you lay all this out brilliantly in the book, the problem, but talk about the solution, because it, it isn't ultimately we 80 percent of the of the world's energy supply is still based on fossil fuels, mm-hmm. and so that dependency hasn't really changed. And it, you do it, like to drive your pickup and truck. And you yeah, say you want, out. yeah. So, yeah. so, so, what is the solution? You know, other than breaking the stranglehold that that oil has on us on, as a Political on the world. Uh, there's, I say, three quick things. First, the good news story in the book is Oklahoma where Oklahoma teachers stand up and people who care about Oklahoma kids stand up in that very red state, uh, which is very much captured by oil and gas industry, and that has had its budget and its governance in the state suffer as a result. They stand up within the past few years and say, you know what, we actually want to have our public schools open all five days a week. We, we don't want to be a four day. We, we don't want to be 48th in the country in terms of teacher pay. And it was the oil and gas industry that was absolutely in control of the budget of that state. And there was a kind of small d Democratic uprising of mostly Republican voters right. uh, uh, approaching their mostly Republican legislators and essentially just turning on democracy and pushing back that incredibly strong industry in that in that state to turn the budget problems around there. They redid the gross production tax on oil and gas in Oklahoma. And I know that sounds boring, but it's like makes my heart sing. It shows that it can be done anywhere. It's not a it's not a thing that can only be done in liberal Mm -hmm, places. mm -hmm. I would also say that the other thing that moves me about this is that Americans are in the catbird seat when it comes to making oil and gas companies into better corporate citizens. If the Dodd-Frank Act uh, provision, Section 1504, super sexy, I know. <laughs> That's like pornography. Re- <laughs> I thought you are. I know. If that required oil and gas companies to declare their bribes, to, to, to fess up to who they were bribing in foreign countries, that would eliminate the Theodore and Obiang problem in Equatorial Guinea because it would give us transparency into the kind of terrible governance that they were propping up everywhere. That existed. That passed the U.S. Congress as part of Dodd-Frank. Now, the Republicans got in and overturned it as one of the very first things they did when Trump was in office. But just reinstating that would be a big deal. And that in itself is a big deal, but it also shows you that all of the Western oil majors either do business here or they're headquartered here or both. And to the extent that U.S. People, U.S. persons can stand up and have our representative government insist on them behaving better around the world. It would have a huge impact, even small regulations. But in the is, is of behaving better going to address what many will see as the much larger issue of climate change? Well, no and yes. I mean, the the last point in terms of how this is going to get how we need to think about how this gets better is I think that we need to get real about the fact that the climate movement, the climate activists are going to win. 
These, this younger generation of climate activists is A, right. B, they've already won the argument. I mean, Rex Tillerson today is in court, federal court arguing about, you know, oh, Exxon, when we said we were accounting for climate change costs, what we meant was, I mean, they've, they've, they have won the argument. They are going to win the fight. And they are going to force a change because of climate change on the use of oil and gas worldwide. They are going to force a hard pivot point. And you know how fast we get there and how ambitiously we get there as a country will depend on our, on our own governance. But when they win, part of the reason I wrote this book is I think we need to expect that there will be severe geopolitical consequences of this industry being reined in. And we should start getting prepared for that because when they're no longer propping up despots and bad systems of governance around the world, I think the boundaries of countries will change. <laughs> Impeachment. As somebody who has been laying out the uh, corruption of the Trump administration and Trump himself for all these years, do you feel a sense of vindication right now? No, I'm just exhausted. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you've been there yourself. You don't feel vindicated, do you? Uh, No. Uh, And I think we still have a lot more hoops to jump through in this saga. Can I ask you, so thinking about other things that Trump has done that are yeah. like what he did with Ukraine. Yeah. Like he did ask China to investigate yeah. Biden too, right? And there right. are there are st- strands and tendrils of this that go into all sorts of other yeah. bigger scandals, arguably. Right. Do you think that the impeachment investigation should explore those things? I think you run the risk of when you broaden it, getting bogged down in subsidiary issues that haven't grabbed the public in the way this seems to have. Mm-hmm. And I think if you go there, that's that that could drag this out. And there's a clock ticking. The closer you get to uh, election season, we're actually in it right now. The more the argument, let's just let the voters decide, mm-hmm. um, is likely to get traction. See, I no? just wonder if. Like, for, like on the China thing, like yeah. the Foreign Relations Committee, separate and apart from what's going yeah. on in terms of impeachment, they should, should they be yes. pursuing that in they their own way? should ask the question. But and if then you... if it turns out that they've got something that is provable, clear, simple, they should essentially ask for it right. to be folded into the articles at that point, but right. not pursue it as through right. the rules that they're voting on this week in, in the House and stuff. I don't, I mean, Yeah, it's hard. I mean, look, it's, it's tough. It's a balancing yeah. act. I mean, if you get something clear and simple, yes, you know, but absent that, I think you got to stick with what you got, I think people will say. But look, here's what I want to pose to you on this. It's pretty clear, <laughs> it's indisputable to some of us, that Trump did exactly what he was accused of doing here. The transcript pretty much made that clear from the get-go. And then he did it again on the South Lawn in case we missed it from the transcript. And all the testimony. So then the question is, what's going to be the defense for Trump when this goes to trial in the Senate? Because it's going to be really tough to argue on the facts. And the more I thought about it, you know, the defense is going to be you and the millions of people that listen to you about Russia, and they're going to say, look— Rachel Maddow and all our listeners were telling the public, you know, there's this vast conspiracy that's going to be proven and that Trump was a Russian asset and he was, you know, manipulated and they had compromise on him. And then we get the Mueller report and... It's not in there. And it proves all of those things, but says we can't can't charge him. Well, no, no, no. That that was about obstruction. It wasn't about the core issues, about the alleged conspiracy that between the Trump campaign and the Russians. That it did not rise to the level of a criminal conspiracy. So if that is, in fact, (laughs) the defense, I mean, do you accept that there are times 
that you overstated what the evidence was and you made claims and suggestions that Trump was totally in Vladimir Putin's pocket and they had something on him and that he was perhaps a Russian asset and we can't really conclude that. What have, what have I claimed that's been disproven? Well, you've given a lot of credence to the Steele dossier. I have? Well, you, you've talked about it quite a bit. I mean, you've, I mean, you've suggested it. I feel you like know. you're arguing about impressions of me <laughs> rather than actually basing this right. on something that you've seen or heard me do. Well, I think we talked about it when I've been on your show, right? Mm -hmm. And I was certainly a part of that. And there are claims in there that simply have not held up under the Mueller What's report. Been um, Michael Cohen paying off Russian hackers in Prague. Uh, the No evidence of the P-tape ever surfaced. The, these, a a well-developed right? conspiracy of exchange of information about the hacking and dumping operation when, you know, it just... Look, look at the Roger Stone trial. Go into case next week. Mm -hmm. What's the big headline there? That, they, that the Trump campaign was trying to use Stone to find out what WikiLeaks had. If you read the Steve dossier, they would have already known because there's a regular flow of information about the information that the Russians had and were giving to WikiLeaks. So that kind of, there were all these parts, also, by the way, other things like the Trump campaign had spies inside the Trump, uh, inside the DNC, you know, no evidence of that. There's a lot of particulars in there. There's a lot of assertions there that haven't been proven. No, or, or, or have, have been, been disproven. What's been disproven? Michael Cohen in Prague. Has been disproven? Yeah. How? The Mueller report said it, and and you know the that Mueller the report FBI, did not know. The me. Mueller report said that no. Michael Cohen denied ever going to Prague. Right. And they accepted that. And if they had True. any evidence that he did, and you know the FBI would have had access to all his phones, laptops, they would have been None able to count for None of that's in the Mueller report. Minute. Do you believe he was? I don't know if he was. Well, but I mean, isn't that But here, like point, you're trying to litigate the Steele dossier through me as if I am in the embodiment of the Steele dossier, right. which I think is creepy. No, no, no. I'm not, and I, I'm not and saying, I think it's unwarranted. No, no, no. And it's not like I've been making the case for the accuracy of the Steele dossier, and that's been the basis of my right. Russia reporting. Right. It's just not true. But I also think that you're over you're overstating it when you say there's things in the Steele dossier that have been actively disproven. Right. I just I mean I think that listen one of the things that's going to happen with the Beryl Howell decision in terms of right. the release of the grand jury material. Right. Is that she said in a ruling, listen, what appears in the Mueller report are assertions essentially that Trump had advanced knowledge of what was going to be dumped through WikiLeaks, right. and. One of the things that is described in the Mueller report, where we don't know what the details are because it's all protected by grand jury secrecy, is what exactly Paul Manafort was doing when he was sending Trump campaign strategy information and polling data right. through an encrypted app to a guy who's associated with Russian intelligence who's then forwarding to somewhere else. And we, like, it would be good to actually know what Mueller was able to pursue there. As far as we know, what we can read of Mueller's report, he says, basically, I wasn't able to follow these things up. Right. And so does that mean that Paul Manafort never sent Trump campaign data to Russian intel? No. no well, it just means that we don't understand the implications of it. Right. So if you tell me something that I've said on the air or that I've said even in conversation with you that's been disproven and turned out to be wrong, right. I will absolutely do a correction on it if it's true, right. but it's just... The, no, no, no. I'm, I, listen, I'm not trying to give you a hard time. I'm yeah, you to are. Give you but you're doing it as my friend. <laughs> I understand yeah, yeah. that's your job. Yeah, but look, it, it, it's the broader point here is that and listen I do listen to what those folks on Fox say because I need to understand mm -hmm. you know where they're coming from and you know they you know their general argument is there was all this stuff 
that a lot of people expected we were going to get from the Mueller report, including yeah. criminal charges against a lot of other people besides Trump himself, Don Jr., Jared Kushner, all others. You know, and after two years or nearly two years, he wasn't he didn't do it. Now, we can fault Robert Mueller or we can suggest maybe the evidence on some of this was murkier than we thought. Well, I think it's also right. still in process. I mean, right. literally right now, there's a seven-day administrative stay before the grand jury material yeah. from Mueller gets handed over to Congress. They've never seen it. Mueller's mm-hmm. designation on that stuff was, listen, right. it's not for me to decide. OLC right. memos mean I can't charge anybody. Right. And so this is for Congress to do. Congress has never seen the evidence. Congress is maybe right. going to get the evidence. It's going to the D.C. Circuit. Right. I mean, all that stuff to me is still live. Yeah. Well, I mean, if we if there's something in the grand jury material that Mueller left out of his report, that's significant. That would or be a failing we... on Mueller. But I would be surprised that there's going to be some bombshell that he had in grand jury testimony that he chose not to use. Aren't you in interested to like on that oh, issue I about the polling data, all. though? Like, aren't you yeah. interested to find out why he wasn't able to determine what happened to that polling data? I think that, yes, I do want to know more. But if you look at the details on the Kalimnik meeting where the polling data was shared, there's a strong suggestion that what Manafort's real interest is was currying favor with some oligarchs who can put him back on their payroll but to make money. Why does giving him 75 pages yeah. worth of Rust Belt strategy data yeah. to help yeah. with that? Well, you know what I mean? Here, look, Oleg, maybe. this is what Grand yeah. Rapids thinks of right. Medicare. All right. You know what I mean? All right. Like, last last yeah. thing we got to right. cover very quickly. You made some news recently about um, things here at NBC and their handling of the Ronan Farrow reporting and the uh, non-disclosure agreements that Farrow says related to Matt Lauer and others at NBC. Uh, NBC has adamantly denied that, but they've lifted the curtain saying that people can. They're no longer bound by those NDAs. First of all, any blowback you've gotten from the hierarchy here at NBC? What's been the reaction? I think I've pretty much said what I'm going to say on the Ronin thing. I mean, to the extent that I've got public stuff to say about how NBC has handled it, I think I said what I'm going to say on Friday. And to the extent that I, you know, they want to talk to me about my reporting or, you know, advance this further, I'll talk to the company about that before I decide if I'm going to say anything further. Just because I don't need to litigate company business <laughs> um, beyond my own reporting and beyond what I can say about it. I uh, fully expected that answer, <laughs> but I had to ask. <laughs> I thought you'd ask me anyway. Um, and uh, anyway, but listen, it's um, great to talk to you in this setting. Mm-hmm. Um, Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thanks for reading yeah. the book. And uh, it was a great book. And uh, our listeners should get a copy of, of Blowout, Corrupted Democracy, Rogue State Russia, and the Richest, Most Destructive Industry on Earth. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> We now have with us Mitch Landro, the former mayor of New Orleans, a prominent voice in Democratic circles, who is uh, launching this week a new project divided by design under the banner of E Pluribus Unum. Mayor, welcome to Skullduggery. It's, it's great to be here. A lot to talk about. And the goal of your new project about race, which we're going to talk to, is about bringing people together. And right now, we are in the middle of an impeachment battle in Washington that is tearing people apart. Is impeachment the right strategy for the Democrats right now in the House? Well, a couple of things. First of all, it's great to be here, and thank you for having me. I have 
although I self-identify as a Democrat and I'm a proud member of the Democratic Party, I've never professed to speak for the National Democratic Party and think of myself as an American first all the time. And I have done that for the 30 years that I have been in office. Washington works a little bit different from the place where I grew up, meaning on the ground. We don't we didn't really when I was growing up in the legislature where I served 16 years or as lieutenant governor for six or mayor, we really weren't driven by being a member of a party. We were just problem solvers. Now, Washington operates differently, which is one of the reasons why it is it is broken, because it is so partisan all of the time. And so when there is an issue that rises to the level of requiring national unity, it's very hard for us to get there. So your question was a political one. Is this a good political strategy to deal with impeachment? The answer is impeachment is never supposed to be looked at as a political strategy. That when the founding fathers were thinking about this, and there's great evidence about it because Hamilton wrote about it in Federalist 65 and Madison talked a lot about it in the minutes of the Constitution Convention, they were aware and they designed it so that we had an election every four years, right? They knew that. And peaceful transition of power was was America's greatest gift to democracy. And so that's what they expected. But they knew because of where we came from and because how imposing and imperious the king was, that if we ever had an executive that had abused his power, there had to be a mechanism. They were stuck, though, because they thought, well, what could possibly be the mechanism to removing somebody that had won the presidency in a legitimate fashion? Now, I don't want to get in an argument with people about whether Hillary got more votes than him. He won the, <laughs> the Electoral College legitimately, so he is a legitimate president. But the Founding Fathers actually put a mechanism in place in order to secure checks and balances and for there not to be an abuse of power in the executive branch by putting in the mechanism of impeachment. And they were very thoughtful about how they designed it, where the House of Representatives gets to be the folks that actually indict and then the Senate gets to do it. So I would, as you think about these things, you should never approach it from a political way. Now, there were some discussions early on about, well, even if you have a duty to do it, should you not do it? because you are going to make it more likely that he's going to get elected in the future. It pained me for a long time because during all the Mueller stuff, I thought, don't do it, don't do it. There's not enough there. It doesn't feel right. It hasn't risen to the level. But after when the Ukraine matter raised up its head, I changed. And I thought to myself, you know, you can't figure this out politically. You have to just do your duty. And if you follow the law and if you follow your duty, which is to hold the president accountable, It seems to me that based on the evidence that we've learned from credible sources who were appointed by the president himself, that this rises to the level of an inquiry. And I think that they have to be very... But we're beyond that now. I mean, we're in the middle of an inquiry, but the question is to vote to impeach. Well, 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 wait a minute. We're We're in the middle of them performing their duty of inquiring, and they're gathering information, and the information is exciting people's minds to, wow, this is deeper and and a broader abuse of power that we thought. And by the way, the people that are testifying are honorable, credible people that lend weight to the idea that the House of Representatives now as a whole needs to take under consideration. And I think the House, especially Nancy Pelosi, has been very balanced about this. So now we're at a level where the decibels are getting higher. You lived during the, the Nixon impeachment crisis. You know that it took a long time. It has now risen to a level of a substantial case that can be made. Whether or not it rises to the level of conviction is going to depend on 
what we learned further on, but I don't think there's any doubt that the House is now doing their duty. Well, it's going to depend, it's gonna depend on Republican yeah, senators I mean, and whether they're well, willing well, to that's break a political, with but they, see, Trump. that's a political matter. The point here is the House is doing their duty. Now, they're going to look at the evidence. They will vote. It is likely going to be a partisan vote. It's then going to go to the Senate. Then the Senate, the question is, are they going to do their duty, and are they going to put party above country, or are they going to put country first? Let me ask you, first of all, what's your judgment as to whether Republicans will put country above party? And let me just, before you answer that, let me follow up by, you mentioned Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi. One of the main reasons that she resisted impeachment until very recently is that she was concerned that if it were a partisan process, by which she meant a partisan vote in the House and then likely a party line vote in the Senate, that that would not be good for our democracy. That would not be good for our politics. That would be corrosive. So answer the two questions. One, do you think there's a real chance that there will be a bipartisan vote in uh, in the Senate and there's a chance of actual conviction? A couple things. First of all, the thing that's corrosive is the president abusing his power in a way that wasn't anticipated by the founding fathers. And I think that whether the president, quote unquote, committed a crime, what qualifies as a high crime and a misdemeanor is something that was anticipated by the founding fathers to stop the president from becoming a king or from abusing his power in a way that wasn't contemplated by the Constitution. And President Trump has demonstrated since he's been in office that he will abuse the power of the presidency for lots of different reasons. So I don't think that's much beyond debate. But the second question is whether or not the Speaker of the House ought to take it upon herself to make a political decision and say, notwithstanding the facts, we're not going to do it because it's going to hurt us politically. I think after thinking about that a lot, because we're all humans and we can't see the future, the best you can do is just do your duty based on the facts that are in front of you and not try to figure out the politics. The third thing I would say is a partisan vote is not necessarily an unfair vote. And so, yeah, it would be great if the Republicans or people who see themselves as partisan would follow the evidence. But if they refuse to, it doesn't alleviate the rest of the elected officials from doing their duty irrespective of party. So it's a particularly difficult call because there's some of us who are just thinking about it. If you were just thinking about it from a political lens, if our goal is to is to beat President Trump, what's the smart political strategic thing to do it? And if he goes to the Senate and he's acquitted, do you make it more likely? And at the end of the day, though, you just have to trust that the American people will rise to the occasion. Now, and what I have seen so far is that the Republican senators, although I still hold out great hope for honorable folks to lean forward, Mitt Romney has been a strong voice. Lindsey Graham has not. You know that when the evidence comes out from people like the lieutenant colonel, who is a Purple Heart, whose allegiance to the country has to go in question. Alexander Vindman. You know, Alexander Vindman is his name, right? When you hear that, these are not deep state guys. These are people that dedicated their cause to the country. I don't know whether he's a Republican or Democrat, but he was appointed by the president's people. He was not appointed by, you know, somebody that ran against the president. He's a guy, and he's telling you what he saw, what he heard, what he touched. And so he is, in my mind, a credible witness. He's somebody that could know, should know, and then his story is credible. So now once you say that's the truth, my question is, are 20 senators who hold the fate of the country in their hands going to rise to the level of putting their country first? There's a lot of evidence that they won't. But, you know, I'd like to hold out hope that we know that one man does not America make and that we have a system of succession so that if President Trump is not there, Mike Pence will ascend to the presidency assuming the president is impeached and removed from office. And then 
the American people will figure the rest of it out. Sue, you're actually on the ground talking to voters as part of the Unum Fund and the work that you're doing right now. You're not just uh, doing podcasts, Correct. although we appreciate that you are here. What are you hearing from voters? Do they care about this? Well, are they engaged in it? First of all, I, the time that I spent to produce this report was in the last 10 months. So from 10 months through about a month ago, we were crisscrossing the South, which is where I'm from, a proud Southerner, love the South. We went to 28 different counties into 13 different states. We were in West Virginia. We were in Dogpatch, Kentucky. We went through Tennessee. We went through the Delta. We were in Alabama, Georgia, we went to Florida, went to Texas, neither of whom consider themselves to be part of the South, by the way. <laughs> we had that discussion. And we were talking about the issue of race. This issue, it's not fair to say they didn't care about impeachment, but we were talking to them about how race impacted their lives, either positively or negatively. They were not stuck on the fights that were going on in Washington at the time. So we did not dig down deeply into this. My experience tells me that people aren't paying a lot of attention to it because it's a lot of noise. At some point in time, it will stop being noise, and they'll focus. It's like they don't watch the whole baseball season, but they're going to watch Game Mm 7. My sense of it is, this is just my political sense, that as this thing gets focused and it gets clear and we get into decision-making time, people will start really thinking about whether— Now, it is quite possible for there to be a trial in the Senate and for the Senate to not— convict the president of uh, an impeachable offense, but the public to make a decision that notwithstanding that fact, he clearly abused his power, and so therefore I am less likely to vote for him. I think the country has a duty to put that information forward, and whether it's handled through the political process of a republic, those elected by us to decide, or the people, it's important for them to have all of the information, both pro and con, about what it is that happened, because generally speaking, the president should not use his power to work with a foreign government to undermine our elections. That is one of the things that the founding fathers thought should not happen, and they wrote it pretty clearly into you know the rules of, of the road, so to speak. And it seems to me that the president, if he didn't violate the law, certainly abused his power in that regard. So this is going to be playing out. It is playing out during an election mm. season. And as the clock keeps ticking. We're getting closer and closer to Iowa caucus, New Hampshire primary, in which inevitably there will be the argument made, let's just let the voters decide. Well, I think that's, it is, this is by nature because it has to be, we're we're a democracy, we're a republic. It is a political process whether Congress does it or whether the people do it. We are deciding through a political process, which is to say not a criminal process of an indictment, which is is a whole nother story later on. And so at the end of the day, I concluded that you just follow the process that's set out. The House and the Senate, do what you think is the right thing to do for the country. And then based on that information, trust the American people to do the right thing. Quit guessing what you think is best for them. Just do your job. And you know what? If after all of this, the people decide to return President Trump to office, we then have to deal with that and work through it. As difficult as that, I think that would be for the country and how horrible a mistake it would be. But it's better for us elected officials not to try to guess what the American people want, you know, but to do our jobs. Okay. So you've been talking here in your hat as an American citizen, not a political partisan, but it is a political season. And we have a democratic race going on right now in which there seems to be increasing unease about the 
candidates who are at least leading the pack right now. You are a prominent centrist in Democratic Party circles. I'm a, I'm a radical centrist. A <laughs> radical centrist. Okay, we'll define that later. But, but, you know, right, the, right now, the leading candidates, according to the polls, are Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Joe Biden. Uh, one would associate you with uh, the Biden that's uh, true. wing of the party, if that's a, if it's a wing. But I like um, to say I live in the realistic <laughs> wing of the Democratic right. Party. But, you know, <laughs> he's uh, he's taken some nicks. He's faded. And at the same time, Warren seems to have um, run into quite a few bumps, particularly after the last debate and her difficulty in answering questions about the cost of Medicare for all. Do you share the unease about your top leading candidates right now? No. And let me let me frame it a different way. First okay. of all, we have people should remember when President Trump ran, there were a whole bunch of very qualified, thoughtful Republicans running and he wiped them out. All right. And and everybody said, where's the Democratic bench? Because there were no nothing was going on. And they felt that Hillary had really kind of preempted the field. But she got in a fight with Senator Sanders, et cetera, et cetera. As we jump forward now, we have 21 candidates and most of them are excellent. I mean, really, really good in terms of breadth and substance and style. And they represent the entire breadth of what anybody would consider to be from the independent wing all the way over to as far left as you can get. It, 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 their ideology represents a fairly broad swath of American political philosophy rooted in the second decade of the 21st century. And most, if not all, of those candidates would be a welcome refuge and for the country from Donald Trump. That's first. So the, the next question gets to be, you know, from me personally, well, who do I most identify with and who do I think the country, for me personally, as a, as a citizen? And I have said Joe Biden. These are the reasons for me. Number one, I, I believe that what the country needs and what the country wants is someone with vast experience who can step into the presidency, stabilize the country, calm the international waters and turn the country around, which is away from where we're going right now. And I think he is the person that's got the best experience and my my view of, of my experience for governing for 30 years is that you not only have to have a vision of where you want to go, you have to have a pathway to get there. And that's why I say I come from the reality wing of the Democratic Party. I obviously believe that health care is a right. I believe all those other things, but I need a pathway. So I think that he, for me, is is represents what the country needs. Now, politically, just as a political operative, if you said, well, who's the best person to win? Who can actually get Democratic votes and independence, I think he's best situated. Now, this is why, let me finish, We this is why we have the primary. And Elizabeth Warren has run a spectacular campaign of ideas and getting people excited. She's a better Bernie than Bernie. And then there's Pete Buttigieg out there who's bringing up, you know, moving us into the future. You have people like Amy Klobuchar, but they're all smart. Joe Biden has started off as a front runner after having everything but the kitchen sink thrown of him by everybody. He continues to perform at a level where he's in the top one, two, or three, depending on where you go. Elizabeth has politically- He's having trouble raising money, well, and yeah, he's no, just opened the door to having a super PAC back his candidacy, something he had previously said yeah, he but, wouldn't do. Are you comfortable with that? Yeah, I'm, let me just say this. Well, you're fighting Donald Trump. He's the meanest, nastiest guy that's ever fought. <laughs> and the richest. And do not, and this, the richest. And, you, and we, let me just say what the Democrats are not going to do. Yeah. We are not going to bring a knife to a gunfight. Yeah. That is not yeah. going to happen. Right. And me, I'm not so, interested- so, 
so, I'm interested so in winning ethically and legally. Six and seven figure checks from you know, tell billionaires. You? Let me tell you something. The country is That's about. Cool. The, That's well, a good way to fight Donald Trump. No, it's a, it's a no. I don't say it's the best way to do it, but mm-hmm. I don't know if you've looked at the way these guys play and the way these guys work. And the Democrats would be foolish to tie their hands and not have everything available to them legally and ethically to take this country back so that we can actually organize it and focus again. You're going to help him with the super PAC? Oh, I'm not involved in his campaign. Okay. I'm just... Let me ask you a follow-up. I'm not being independent. That's the whole point of a super PAC. I'm not, as I said, I'm only responding as American citizen. I'm not involved in the the vice president's campaign at the moment. I haven't endorsed him. All I'm saying is... It sounds like you just endorsed him. I did not endorse him. I I told you what I thought. You asked my opinion, and I gave you my opinion. So don't put words in my mouth. Let's not do <laughs> Don't but be let, one let, of those let, guys. Let but, me, what I, but what I am saying is this: you have, in order to govern, you have got to win. That's it's just simple. You can't govern if you don't win. So let's not be ideologically bent. Let's be thoughtful. Let's be you know strategic, and let's win because the future of the country depends on it. Let me ask you one follow up on Biden, and it's on a subject that you clearly have thought a lot about, which is race. So in the first Democratic debate, Kamala Harris had her moment. She really went after him on the subject of race, particularly on his early support for uh, busing and also on some of the things he'd said about uh, some of the segregationists in the Senate like James Eastland. What did you think of that exchange and how Kamala Harris handled it and how Joe Biden well, responded to it? So I'll make an observation for you and I'll do it politely since y'all, I'm your guest. Every question that you guys have asked me has been way up here. We're from Washington. What does the world look like from way out here all the way down to the ground, which is completely wrong. My work has been on the ground to help people where you are and in Washington understand what people are talking about on the ground. And they're not talking about anything that any of the candidates are talking about. So I'll answer your question. I thought that as a a political matter at that moment, um, attacking Joe Biden for a position that he had 40 years ago or 30 years ago, when both both of, not just Kamala Harris, at, in that instance, I think Kristen Gillibrand was still around and she did it with a domestic, with another issue. They knew Joe, Joe Biden's heart and Joe Biden's mind. And I thought it came off as inauthentic. And I think the public responded that way. So when you, again, race, it's a very tough subject for people. We really don't know how to talk about it, which is one of the things this study has yeah. revealed to me on the ground that white people and African-Americans and Latino people feel very uncomfortable. We don't have common language. We see the world differently. We, as- we say we aspire to the same thing. So this, the poll that we did reflects that almost everybody, white and black, Latino, believe that equal opportunity should be available for all. They want their kids' lives to be better than theirs. But when you kind of really get into the gravy and say, well, look, let's talk about this. Do you think there's racism in America? Most white people say, no, not really. And by the way, racism is an individual act of aggression from a white person to a black person by using a bad word. African-Americans obviously see the world very differently. And wealthy African-Americans, poor African-Americans across the line say, listen, the institutions of this country have always been designed to make it less likely that we'll have the same opportunities in the same way as everybody else. And white people have exhibited not a deep understanding of that feeling. And African-Americans have said, well, we can prove it to you chapter and verse. This is when redlining happened. And by the way, this wasn't in 1890. We're talking about in the 1960s. And as a consequence, and the line, the way that schools districts are drawn or gerrymandered legislative districts that really kind of prohibit or make it harder for African-Americans to win. All of these things are institutional designs 
that have produced a result that make it much harder for us. So if you want to level the playing field, you have to change the design, which is why our report is called Divided by Design, which you can look at at dividedbydesign.org. That's got an interactive map. When you start talking hard, like tough things, when during the middle of, of our visits, ta Coates' article that he had written in The Atlantic years ago started getting more more play, and, and the issue of reparations came up during the presidential debate. So we started asking people in the focus groups, what do you think about white privilege or reparations or things like that, uh, or equity? Most working people in America, in the focus groups that were identified as non-college educated African Americans and all whites throughout the South, their idea of racial of equity was not racial equity, but the value that you have in your car. So this thing of racial equity that we're talking about and the difference between equity and equality has yet to permeate all the way on the ground unless communities have really thought a lot about it. On white privilege, most every white person you talk to denies having benefited from white privilege because they don't really understand what it is. It's a trigger word. But when you say to them, you know, do you think, can you think of any times in your life where you may have been given the benefit of the doubt because you were white or you have gotten things that other folks would not have gotten and you really got to get down into it? Then they start to wake up and go, oh, well, okay, I can see that. On reparations, almost every white person we talked to said, I am not responsible for what happened a long time ago and I'm not paying money to anybody else. Not universally true, but mostly true. But if you started to talk to them about not necessarily being at fault, but being responsible to change the institutions that have produced this result and fixing what we broke or cleaning up what we messed up. There is an opening there. And so it, it was these kinds of things. We weren't having political discussions with people that you and I were talking about a little while ago. And so uh, yeah. as you think about how to take the, take the country through race, which we have never done in a structural way, like you know Germany has done or South Africa has done, it seems to me that most people in the South who were asked believe that diversity is a strength, not a weakness. And that idea has been been tested on the federal level by the president and some other people. Most people in the South, notwithstanding how we act and how we talk, believe that as a principle of governing in America, that diversity is a great calling card for who we are, and we ought to find a way to get to the other side of it. Do you know what I'm interested in? um, You're known for talking about these issues for being compassionate, for having empathy, kind of big-hearted and, and ultimately optimistic. And it seems to me that talking about race is difficult. You know, it's always difficult, and it's difficult just between two average Americans in, in a lot of ways. Um, when you're running for president and you're on the debate stage and you've got reporters and you know cable television ready for any misstep on such a hot-button, contentious subject, uh, it's particularly hard. So what is... First of all, do you see the sort of spirit of your approach uh, echoed in how the Democratic field is talking about well, these issues? I, and if and, and what advice would you give to them on how to talk about race? Well, first of all, I would give them all A's for raising the issue. You know, it's been talked about in many of the debates. We never used to talk about this on the debate stage. And notwithstanding the clumsiness of the interaction between um, Senator Harris and, and Joe Biden, Cory Booker has talked about this in a thoughtful, elegant, beautiful way. Kamala has as well. Pete Buttigieg is trying and has done, a, notwithstanding the fact that he's not from a place that has a huge African-American population. They, and, they, and has problems uh, with his African-American well, population. But, 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 but in, it's not because he's white. It's because he's not from where a lot of people well, are. Well, he fired and so the African-American police chief I'm in not, the city. Well, you just right. conflated two issues <laughs> for me. So don't well, do that. But isn't that the reason I, that he's no, got problems what, with his it, um, it, African-American constituents? I don't know what all the reasons are. One of them, and this is what white people have a hard time understanding, 
African-Americans and whites are a lot alike. Like, if they don't know you, they have a hard time liking you or disliking you. And so 54% of Americans, African-Americans live in the South. So if you're not from there and they don't know you, they're not going to be for you just because you're black or you're white. That you have to go there. One of the reasons why the vice president's numbers are so strong is because he's been around so long. They know him. They're familiar with him and they're comfortable with him. That is not to say that they somebody else can't peel them off of them. But white people keep thinking that black people think differently than we do about a lot of stuff. But if you never knew anybody and you didn't meet him and they were from another part of the country and somebody said, well, he's having trouble getting your vote. You would say, well, if I got to know him a little bit better. But you- on the issues, on the issues, to, to get back to your point. There has been a lot of discussion about race, and they're handling it better than they have in the past. Now, again, now we're talking about candidates running on the federal level. What I'm talking about is people on the ground, the folks that are the first responders, the first that are the car mechanics, the teachers, the coaches. In those areas, Americans have never really been gotten to the point where we've talked about it so that we can get to the other side. And I'm telling you from the polling that we've done, there is a pathway to the future, but the reality now is that we see the world differently depending on what neighborhood you're from. And by the way, it changes a little bit depending on what your community you're in and how much money folks are making in that community. There's evidence that if a community is doing financially better, racial healing is, is, is a little bit easier at the moment. People are hanging out a little bit more. They have more opportunities where people are, where, where areas are really having a, a tough time economically. It's easier to separate people by race. And of course, you know this already because your mind should go, if you're a political person, to the 1972 Southern strategy that was purposefully implanted by Lee Atwater and Nixon, which was a recapture of something that happened 30 years earlier and 30 years earlier than that. So if you let the country separate people by race and class when they're hungry and they're scared because they don't know each other, it kind of gives a precursor to when President Trump said, all Muslims are terrorists, all Mexicans are rapists, you know, all African-Americans are criminal. And oh, by the way, when you say urban, I hear black. And when you say rural, I mean white. That's not true either. So let me pick up on that because there's a question or an issue about how you talk about it and how you and how you're going to refer to President Trump, who's clearly has this long history of saying racially insensitive things. For some, it means he's a racist. Would you advise the Democrats and whoever is the Democratic nominee to talk about the president as a racist? Well, again, I'm not I'm not giving advice to candidates. That's not what the point of this poll is. But I would say that's the point. That's the point of this uh, podcast. Yeah, (laughs) the is the if the the political challenge is that if you if someone says about another person, you are a racist. The headline is so-and-so calls somebody a racist and the other person says you're an idiot and then nobody's ever talking about the underlying thing. Racism is defined by judging another person based on their race and as a consequence treating them a separate way. If do, you, that person, do you believe President Trump fits he, that category? He clearly does. And as a racist. He, no, Mike, you're not going to get me to say what you want me to say. So let me, let me answer the question thoroughly and then so that you don't put words in my mouth so that we get this right. When a person acts in a way that judges other people by their race, by their creed, by their color, by their sexual orientation, all a seed of hate, and they enact policies because of that, they are engaging in behavior based on race. You can call that whatever you want to call it, but that's what that person is doing. And instead of calling somebody an epithet or running away from it, if you engage in racist behavior and you do it over and over and over again, if someone called you a racist, they would not be far away from accurately describing your behavior. Now, that's different from calling somebody a nasty name. 
And so when we should, again, on this notion, you should judge people based on their behavior, not by on, on calling them a name. And don't get stuck. Now, don't run away from it. Don't hide it. I think it is fairly clear that the president, based on the things that he has said, the things that he has done by the false equivalencies in Charlottesville, has engaged in behavior that can be defined as racist. Whether you call him a racist or not and get into this, what's in his heart, what's in his mind, did he intend it, was it a consequence? That's the kind of behavior that the United States has said is out of bounds and you should not engage in. And I think that it's fairly clear, and you can make a case that he has done it time and time and time again because he believes in order to win, you have to divide. And the way you divide is by scaring people who look different from you. That is, that is behavior that's based on a, hate. Do you think that's a successful political strategy for him? Well, it was him? successful enough for him right. to get elected. And he's going to try it again. And the only question is not, this is what I get, it bums me out. We need to quit. We know what he is. He is honest in this regard, notwithstanding the fact that every time he opens his mouth, he's not telling the truth. He is honest about who he is. He said. Isn't that his appeal? Yes. Well, a lot of people are appealed to it. So this this is really, this election really is not about Donald Trump. It really is not. This election is really about the American people and what they want for our country. If they think that divided, they get what they want then they're going to choose. I happen to think that that's the way wrong way for the country. I believe that diversity is a strength. I believe that we exclude certain people. Not only do we hurt them, but we hurt ourselves. I believe that America will never be the country that we all say we want to be, which is a great country, the more perfect union, unless everybody is included in opportunity and responsibility. And President Trump, you have to give him this. He says, I am going to win and I'm going to win at all costs. Well, we thought all costs meant, well, within the rules. He's like, look, this is Butch Cassidy, the Sundance Kid, and the knife fight was it. There are no rules. And I think that American people are going to have to decide whether or not we have guardrails to our democracy. If they, if they think that we shouldn't, and they think it's okay for us to be divided, and they like the way things are going, they're going to put this guy back in office. Now, I would not, as, a, as now I'm thinking as a political strategist, I would not test that more than we have to. So, for example, when the Democrats start thinking about who are they going to put up, I think I would listen to the voters. So not just think about what do I want, but what are the voters actually thinking about and what do they need, which gets you into this whole discussion about whether you want to be for Biden. So, or OK, so wait, I got to say this. So, Mike, all right, so our producer, Mark, here, yeah. so I guess that our time is up. I got one There's last one question. question the there's one question that we have not asked don't Mayor ask Landry. It. Don't ask And it. I think it ought to just be don't like a pregnant it. question that just sort of, you know, sort of lies out there. We know, you <laughs> don't know. ask it. Do you know what I'm talking You know what I'm talking about? I, I, I don't know. You know my I, got, I got one last Stop question for ahead. him. Uh, all right. Um, don't ask it, man. If the Democrats get stuck... You available to run? No. You they're not. Asked, first of all, they're not going to get it. You went there. It was <laughs> not, first of all, let me say this to you. Yeah. They're not every four years. People get nervous. This is the field. You have the field. Unless something dramatic occurs that nobody has ever anticipated, this race is not likely to see new candidates. You know, people talk about it all the time. And I do think the Democratic elite, all those people that are, that are talking we have a lot of good candidates, many of whom can beat him, but some are better poised than others. And I think that they, you know, the, the issue is joined. I don't I don't see, I, I, I'm my, not a good my, enough historian to remember this, but I don't remember whether we've had a broker convention in recent memory. 1952. I would call that recent memory. So it's highly, Stevenson in the third. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's highly, un- it's, it's highly unlikely. I do think, though, that you could potentially see 
some third parties jumping in this thing that could move it a little bit. I don't know who they would be, but it just seems to be that it's so volatile that it wouldn't be unusual well, to I, see something I, like that I will happen. point out as the final note, you did say that unless something dramatic and unexpected happens, and we've had no shortage of dramatic, unexpected well, things happening. That's why I happening. said it. I mean, so, it's, a crazy, it's a crazy time. So I'm going to take that as you're leaving the door open. No, 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 no. no. Again, you conflate it. You, you're a good reporter, but you're not faster than me. You conflated two things. You said, do you see me doing it? And the answer is no. And secondly, do you think that anything could happen where it would open up? And I'm thinking that unless something dramatic happens, you have the candidates that you're going to have. Okay. On that note. <laughs> but you might be smarter than me. I'm sorry. You probably are. I just went to say but Matthias. not as fast. But not I as go fast. To, I didn't go to that fancy school that you yeah, went to. The only thing I got more than you is hair. But that's uh, <laughs> uh, All right. And I have hair envy. Can I tell you? I do. I can see the point. Thank you, Mayor Landro. You're welcome. Okay. Thanks to author and MSNBC host Rachel Maddow and former mayor of New Orleans, Mitch Landrieu, for joining us on this episode of Skullduggery. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. The latest episode is also on Sirius XM on the weekend. Check it out on POTUS Channel 124 on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time with replays on Sundays at 1 a.m. and 3 p.m. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. Talk to you soon.